Thanks for listening to the Family Perspectives podcast brought to you by the BYU School of Family Life Student Editorial Board. I'm Madeline Sorensen. And I'm Tyler Clancy. And today we'll be interviewing Dr. David Dalahite, Professor of Family Life here at Brigham Young University. Dr. Dalahite is a professor of family life at Brigham Young University, where he teaches classes and conducts research on the links between religion and family life. He is co-director with Dr. Lauren Marks of the American Families of Faith Project. He received the Eliza R. Snow Fellowship for his research on religion and family relationships and was an associate director of the School of Family Life. He has been a visiting scholar at the Stanford University Center on Adolescence, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Dominican University of California, and was a visiting scholar at a university in India. Professor Dalahite obtained a bachelor's degree in family life and a master's degree in marriage and family therapy from BYU, and a doctorate in family studies from the University of Minnesota. He is co-author with Lauren D. Marks of Religion and Families. He has published over 100 scholarly articles and chapters and has edited or co-edited four books. Dr. Dalahite and his wife have been married since August of 1983 and are the lucky parents of seven terrific kids. We're really excited to have Dr. Dalahite on the podcast today, and we hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Dr. Dalahite. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights with us. Good to be with you. We're excited to, to have this conversation. I think we would be doing our listeners a disservice if we didn't uh, give you a moment to share your story with us and our community, uh, a little bit about your background and the path you took to get here to BYU. Happy to. Uh, I was raised in Northern California back in the 60s and 70s, and I was not a religious person except for a couple of years when I was an altar boy in the Episcopal Church. Uh, I came across the Book of Mormon when I was 18, read the book uh, in about two nights, and prayed and received a very powerful answer that the book was true, that God lived, that uh, my sins were forgiven. And I then took missionary discussions and joined the church. Soon after that, I came to BYU as a freshman back in 1978. And on my mission, I decided I wanted to help families. I wanted to study families. So I came back to BYU, studied family life, and got a master's degree in marriage and family therapy, then did a doctorate at University of Minnesota in family studies then taught for a few years at University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And then I joined the faculty here at BYU in 1993 and uh, been studying religion and fathering and religion and families now for about 27 years. I'm just delighted to be here. The students are awesome here and, and I love teaching about marriage and family life and about faith and family life here at BYU. Well, uh, Thanks for thanks for sharing that, and and I'm we're uh, excited to to dive into these issues. Uh, with 27 years of experience, I I imagine we'll have some great discussion today. Um, so for our listeners, to give you some background on the conversation today, when we asked Dr. Dalahite to come on the podcast, and if there was anything in particular he thought would be pertinent to discuss, he shared with us one of his most recent articles. Um, it's an article titled "Positive Youth, Religious, and Spiritual Development." what we've learned from religious families. 
And if I understand this review correctly, it's a compilation of six different studies that you conducted with um, Dr. Lauren Marks uh, over the past couple of years. That's a lot of information. Yeah, we've started, uh, the first article was published back in 2008. It was on uh, conversations, uh, religious conversations between parents and their adolescent kids. And then every few years since then, we've published something where we've looked at um, parents of religious kids, how, how sort of best approaches to parenting. Uh, and then we've looked at religious um, development and spiritual development among these youth. So, yeah, we've um, we've interviewed 200 families of faith across America from uh, many different faith backgrounds. And I personally interviewed all of the families that had adolescent kids as part of the interview. So I interviewed 50 families uh, with adolescent children and learned a lot about how they develop their spiritual um, lives, how they live their faith, what kind of sacrifices they make, um, how they explore their faith. And um, it's been a lot of fun just to learn about how our friends of many faiths uh, go about uh, learning about their faith and teaching their adolescents about their faith. Absolutely. Um, well, and with a background in marriage and family therapy, what led you to the, I don't want to say the jump, but the transition to, or the focus specifically on religion and families and how that inter interacted in, in that co family context? Yeah, as a um, family therapist, uh, you get to work in the trenches with families and you realize that those families that live their faith in a healthy, positive way um, tend to have great strengths and great benefits. On the other hand, sadly, those families who live their faith in uh, dysfunctional ways, uh, unhealthy ways, oppressive ways, tend to be uh, much less happy and much less healthy. And the youth in those families tend to be frustrated. And so there's a whole body of research on family life and hundreds of studies that show that those parents and youth who are more religious tend to have a number of benefits, uh, physical benefits, mental health benefits, relationship benefits. And so we decided to study what it was about religious belief and religious practice that tended to make a difference. So again, hundreds of studies, actually thousands of studies have shown correlations between more religiosity and all kinds of benefits for folks. We wanted to look at um, how what, what does religion do that makes such a difference? That is really interesting. And so as I as I read through your study and, and full disclosure, I, I did take take your class. So I have I've read through a couple of these, well, all of these studies before. What um, when you talk about the diverse uh, friends of different faiths, what are the different faith groups that you were able to interview throughout these studies or what, what was yeah. that? What did that range look like? So we chose to focus on families in the Abrahamic faith. So Jewish families, Christian families, and Muslim families. And there's such diversity. There's you know, almost 3,000 different denominations in Christianity. There's four major denominations or branches of Judaism. There's at least two major branches in Islam. So we also looked uh, our samples about uh, a half ethnic minority family. So we have families from various faith backgrounds as well as various ethnic and racial backgrounds. And the combinations of all those has just been you know, fascinating. There's been plenty of diversity. So we didn't look at Hindu families or Shinto families or Buddhist families, but basically all those families that look to Abraham, you know, they're uh, families that use the, the Old and New Testaments as well as the Quran. That's really interesting when you talk about the Abrahamic faiths and 
And there is so much diversity um, within those faiths, even within the United States, which is where most of um, this research took place. All, at, of, the all of it. Okay. Are, many of them, about a quarter of the families are immigrants, first generation immigrants to the United States from all over the world. But yes, these are all families in America that we interviewed. Well, with that diversity in mind and uh, with with all of the different, I guess, uh, constructs that you looked at, what are certain findings or main ideas that held consistent throughout these studies and throughout your interviews? Some things that you might consider main ideas or the big takeaway messages. Yeah. Well, it was fascinating. Um, I was so fortunate to get to sit in the living rooms and around the kitchen tables with these wonderful families of these many faiths. And while, of course, there are differences in how people worship and prayers and, and their scripture, the commonalities were really quite stunning. Um, and the basic unity that comes when families all look to the same set of beliefs when they all are involved in the same faith community when they all believe that they're supposed to do certain commandments or certain expectations it brings a great unity to the family and so although it was fun to learn about all these many faiths um, i came away with incredible respect and appreciation for and let's talk about the youth i mean the, the parents definitely but uh, i got to interview about 80 youth from age about 12 to about 20 and I was so impressed with their um, diligence, the sacrifices they were willing to make for their faith. I was very impressed with their strong sense of identity. Many of them found themselves as a minority faith, a misunderstood minority faith in their schools. And many of them made sacrifices to keep their faith. They wouldn't play sports, for example, on the day that was their holy day. They wouldn't partake of certain substances. Um, and this is, you know, people from many faiths have different kind of restrictions, dietary restrictions, and that set them apart from their fellow peers. And but their strong sense of identity and their strong sense of um, confidence in their faith, even though, again, they were often in a situation where they were a minority faith. And so they were perceived by their peers as being different, sometimes strange. It was impressive how. Um, how much sense of self these youth had. That's really telling that in a way, the thing that set them apart um, really solidified that identity. And um, even things like sacrifices and being the, being the odd man out at school sometimes had a pretty profound effect on people's lives. I think that's really interesting. Um, I think as a general precursor to this discussion, the reason I think this sticks out to to our audience is in discussions that I have as a college student, I'm not uh, a parent yet, but as I talk to uh, peers of mine who are in the stages of um, on the precipice of starting families, on the precipice of getting married, engaged, um, it's a it's a little daunting to raise a, a, a child in a world that seems uh, and, and at least from from my perspective, seems to be getting more secular and and even hostile in some cases to to religion. Um, is that something that you saw that some of these attitudes um, reflected uh, in your interviews? Yeah, a lot of the youth um, did feel like they were swimming upstream, like it was a challenge to be a, a devout or observant or active member of their faith community with the pressures to conform to a more secular, popular culture uh, approach. 
And so most of them talked about sometimes feeling uh, lonely, sometimes feeling um, misunderstood. Uh, in some cases, um, particularly some of the Muslim kids felt persecuted. Uh, some of these interviews were soon after 9-11, uh, and they had you know, name calling going on, uh, people driving past them if they were wearing the hijab, driving past them and, uh, and you know, yelling at them from the car, sometimes throwing things at them, um, you know, teasing, mocking. Um, so yeah, m many of these kids found themselves um, dealing with a culture that wasn't really supportive. And, and when they made these sacrifices and made efforts to, to be who they wanted to be and who they believed that God wanted them to be, they often did pay a price. But again, their, their level of um, sort of confidence, and obviously the, 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 the youth that were a little bit older, those that were you know, 15, 16, 17, had more confidence than those that were 12, 13, 14. That's just sort of natural development uh, processes. But um, it, it was, uh, I was very encouraged to see how many of these youth planned to follow their faith, even against the, the cultural um, opposition that many of them experienced. Excellent. And, and, I, and I definitely, in the religious community, especially with, with parents and, you know, I don't think those challenges are, are lost. But I do think what, speaking for myself and others, is what we maybe find challenge with is how to overcome those. But that's exactly what your research looked at. What are these um, factors that strengthen families, that strengthen individuals within families. My favorite, uh, one of my favorite parts of your research was in study three. You use the word anchor and specifically anchors of religious commitment to describe how youth commit to their religious identity. Um, kind of, you talked about swimming upstream, but this is something that really grounds children and grounds families. Can you speak a little bit more about what these anchors are? In people's lives, yeah. So one of the, uh, the study you mentioned, we were focused on um, commitment. What was it that helped youth stay strong in their faith? And essentially, there were several. Uh, we used the, the the term anchors, the metaphor anchors. That included um, God. You know, many people talked about. You know, it was so interesting to hear these young people. You know, many people might assume that young people, you know, teenagers are only religious because their parents want them to be, you know, sort of parental pressure. And sure, there's always going to be some of that. But it's amazing how many of these kids had a profound relationship with God and they felt loyalty to God and they felt uh, they loved God and they wanted to please God. They didn't want to disappoint God. And so they were willing to put up with the teasing, the rejection, the the peer pressure, the um, social ostracizing that sometimes happened because of their love for God. So God was the strongest anchor that they talked about. They also talked about their parents, that they loved their parents, they respected and honored their parents. And uh, it's interesting to hear these kids talk about how uh, they would hear their fellow peers talking about lying to their parents and sneaking around behind their parents' back and kind of being proud of rebelling against their parents. And many of these religious kids talked about how they, because they loved God, because they believed in the scriptures, and that scriptures were another anchor for many of these kids, uh, you know, the scriptures teach to honor 
your father and your mother. And so they said things like, I can't lie to my mom and my dad. I, I can't go behind their back because that would displease God. And so, you know, loyalty to parents and honoring parents was another anchor. Um, a, a number of them talked about religious leaders who they respected, youth leaders, pastors, rabbis, imams, priests, who they looked up to, they respected, and they, uh, they appreciated their guidance and their mentorship. Um, some talked, let's see, I'm trying to think of the other. Um, oh, faith traditions, especially Jewish kids talked about how much they valued their faith traditions, um, holidays, celebrations, um, you know, Passover, uh, so forth. They talked about that those were enjoyable, that they, they were meaningful to them. Uh, they really look forward to those. So, yeah, these are just different ways that kids were sort of tied to their faith and, and had different kinds of commitments. And we, well, I'll let you ask the next question. I could talk more about that, I'll, but you probably want to hear about some other things as well. No, I think that's such an interesting and uh, kind of uh, apparent. I, I love the word. I think it's a very articulate word, that anchor. It's such a, I, when I hear an anchor, I, I suddenly have that image of my mind of something that's holding you in place. And the other thing that stuck out to me too is one, the relation, the personal relationship with God and then the relationship with their parents too. In this, in your second study, one of the subheadings is, uh, talks about these really positive relationships. It's talking about the parent child relationship is a nurtured one. This, and I, and I think that kind of implies that there's really no shortcuts or no, you know, five quick ways to solidify your, your son or daughter's testimony for life. But these are, these are relationships that are forged over a, a long period of time. Can you speak to some of just the family dynamics or the relationships that you saw in, with your interviews? What did those look like um, when you're sitting down, like you said, at the kitchen table? What was the, the feeling in the room that stood out to you? Yeah. Well, a lot of studies, including our own, have found that the quality of the relationship between the parents and the children, the, the amount of warmth and emotional closeness, the amount of respect for the youth's autonomy, the amount of respect for the choices that the youth makes, these type of relationship factors are really, really important. And sure, doing religious things, having prayer together, studying sacred texts together, um, participating in enjoyable religious holidays together, going to religious services together, those kinds of religious practices are certainly important in helping youth to learn about their faith and to learn sort of connection with their faith. But lots of research, including ours, indicates that if parents aren't careful, if they focus too much on the practices, on the rituals, on the sort of um, trying to teach and maybe even preach to their, to their kids, if they don't remember that the relationships that they build with their youth are the most important, the most uh, likely to have a child feel good about their parents. So, for example, the very first study we did was about conversations. And we found that parents who, and most parents came to learn this, though some of them, uh, it took them some time. Uh, if parents didn't learn pretty early on in their adolescence lives to listen 
to, to be respectful of their adolescents' perspectives, of their adolescents' opinions and feelings and preferences and things that they, that they did not didn't like about the faith. If parents just sort of, uh, to, to quote one young person, you know, did slammed Bible verses at them um, or, or preached so much or, or, or felt like they needed to bring religion into every interaction and every activity, um, that actually had the tendency to push kids away. And so one of the powerful lessons uh, that I take away from this is it's really important for parents to love their faith, to be authentically involved in their faith, to try to be an example of their faith. It's also equally important for the parent not to put the religious practices above the relationship, not to put ritual over relationship, but to make mm -hmm. sure to see how the kids are feeling about things, get some feedback. What are their children concerned about? One of the things about conversations that, is that the, a lot of the youth talked about if their parents um, made the conversations about the youth's life and made it applicable and, and kind of brought the teachings to the level of the adolescent, they really appreciate it. Whereas if the parent kind of stayed at a high theological level and just sort of preached, and then that wasn't so appreciated and the youth didn't really want to hear about it anymore. Not surprising. Surprising. Yeah. We, you and I would never be those adolescents that would not listen. Never. And <laughs> nor would, would we ever be the parents that got on our preaching uh, hobby horse and, and didn't listen. Never. Couldn't never. Be. Um, no, I, I love that. And I love how your research is so applicable. Um, and I, and, and you really, characterize it well with that takeaway message. It's a holistic seven days a week relationship. If you are uh, forceful and you know, domineering Monday through Saturday, that relationship isn't going to change overnight on Sunday. And I think that's a really powerful way to put it. Let's jump ahead here to study five. Um, one of the things you stuck out to me is you talked about an example. Um, I know in your life, um, through taking your class and that your father was a big influence on you. Now, your your father wasn't necessarily um, religious. He didn't share your faith, but you always looked to him as an example. And I think that example strengthened your relationship a little bit. Would you Would you say that is true? Yeah, my dad. <clears throat> my dad. Um, his own father was killed in a car crash. A drunk driver hit him. So my dad lost his dad when he was only fourteen, and. Um, I think that really affected his faith. I think it was hard for him to believe in God. Um, so he, he, although he raised me in the Episcopal faith because um, he wanted me to have that moral upbringing, he himself actually didn't believe in God, which I didn't learn until later when I joined the Church of Jesus Christ and tried to share some things with my dad. Um, he mentioned to me that, well, uh, I don't really believe in God. And that was surprising to me because he always seemed to be a moral, ethical Person And I learned that someone could be an absolutely honorable, moral, marvelous person and not have God or religion in their life. And my dad lived with us for the last 17 years of his life after my mom died of cancer. Uh, my wife and I invited my dad to come live with us. So he was there. We had this uh, three generation home where he, um, again, though he did not believe in God and certainly did not believe in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, he had some serious issues with, with, with our faith. And nonetheless, he came to church with us. He participated in family home evening with us. He participated in 
uh, our prayers in our scripture study. And he did so not because he believed it, but because he wanted to be part of the family. He didn't want to be a disruptive influence as we raised our seven children in, in our faith. And that kind of humility and uh, willingness to um, do things that he didn't really enjoy, didn't really believe in, but he did it to be um, to be a, a, a part of our family. That to me, that's a, a marvelous example. And, and he's, uh, yeah, he's he's one of my great heroes. Well, what a perfect example of the things you talked about, the the strong relationship. Um, another subheading in study five, which is called what religion? Uh, that subheading is called what religious parents felt called to be. Is one of them is authentic, and I think that cannot be overstated um, in a, from, from a child's perspective. When you see consistency, authenticity, and an example from your mother or your father, my, my mother's a great example of someone who she is who she is seven days a week. And so sure, I might not agree with her 100% of the time, but that trust is built because I know who she is and we have that trust. And that's something that I think in my own life, as I was reading your research, it kind of rang true to me. And I'm, yep, that's exactly right. That's one of the pillars of our relationship. Um, Could I just say something about that term authenticity that you mentioned? That was a bit of a surprising finding for us, how many parents focused on the fact that they certainly felt like they were not by any means perfect. They knew that there was a discrepancy between what their ideals were and what their uh, actual behavior was. And they wanted their kids to know uh, that they weren't trying to um, be a hypocrite. They weren't trying to put on airs. They weren't trying to pretend to be something that they weren't. They wanted their kids to know that they were struggling to live the faith and to live up to their high ideals and to live up to what God expected of them. And they felt like it was very important for them um, to walk the walk, not just talk the talk, and to to let their kids know that um, no one is perfect. Everyone is uh, striving to be something better than what they currently are, more than what they currently are, because that's what God asks us. And they just, uh, it was very impressive to hear those parents focus on how what they wanted to be authentic. They wanted to be consistent. They wanted to be real for their kids. And they felt like that was better than trying to put on a religious show or try to hide their faults or try to pretend that they were something that that they were that they were not and i just think that's uh yeah you're right that the power of authenticity is really really strong i love that and what stood out to me as you were just talking is that that also takes an element of humility as well um and and in an authentic way i think in the religious context is bringing your faith to the football game and bringing your faith to the dinner table um to work to school and seeing how as a parent if i was a parent to see how my faith impacted my life on a tuesday not just on a sunday and i think when children see their parent living out their faith uh, you know like i say monday through saturday then it's it's an element of trust it is that example it is that authenticity um and i i really love that so thank you for sharing that so are you saying that we shouldn't scream at the refs at the football game uh, no, no comment. <laughs> um, I, uh, I know, I know no parents listening have ever, have ever yelled at a ref. So that's a good, 
good thing. One more, one more subheading I just wanted to discuss was it was it was entitled "Giving Up Something Good for Something Better," and you alluded to this a little bit at the beginning um, when it talks about sacrifice, and I think that's such an interesting. Uh, role that religion plays and kind of a challenge that many uh, of our faith uh, asks us to do. Um, you mentioned wearing a hijab in a country that is not majority Muslim. Um, as a member of the LDS faith, uh, you're from uh, California. I'm, I'm sure that there were some uh, activities going on in high school and that didn't fit with your with your faith belief. And so Talk to me a little bit about how parents can help their children to understand the role that sacrifice plays and understand the, the why of behind we, you put it best when you say giving up something good for something better. Yeah, that was one of the most impressive um, parts of my experience in interviewing youth from many faiths. Um, and by the way, in my case, and when I was in high school, I was not religious. So I was actually one of those kids that was teasing the religious kids. I, I was uh, kind of a, in fact, I dated a gal for a while that was a devout Lutheran, and I would tease her for her religious observances. I'm ashamed of that now, obviously. Um, but I was so impressed with how many of these youth were willing to do the hard things, you know, to, to make, I mean, sacrifice of time for many of them it was getting up in the morning to go to services when they'd rather sleep in i mean teenagers like to sleep and their body needs to sleep and to get up early to go to services was a, was a hard thing um, not watching certain kinds of media was a hard thing for many youth because their friends would talk about movies want to go see a movie want to watch a video and they would not do it Sometimes they'd get up and leave if, if you know, they, they went expecting one kind of a film and then something else was shown, they'd get up and leave. And that's hard for youth who are so focused on being accepted, being, you know, not thought of as weird. Um, for youth who wore modest clothing, uh, Orthodox Jews, uh, Muslims, Latter-day Saints, a um, number of other faiths practice modesty of some kind or another in their dress. And when you're wearing clothes that are, aren't not, are not the necessarily most fashionable or the most hip clothing that you get teased and you get you, know, you get looked down on. Um, expecting to to be able to date. A lot of these kids didn't start dating until 16, 17, 18. And I mean, some Latter-day Saints think that it's only Latter-day Saint youth who are asked not to date till 16. That's not the case. There's many people from many faiths who um, hold off on dating until Delay later. That. And that's really hard when you want, again, you want to be part of the in crowd. You Absolutely. want to be accepted. Absolutely. You want to have fun. Um, and, and, and I don't think, I don't think that necessarily goes away um, after you turn 18. No, it doesn't. It, I think it can, depending on where you live and the culture in which you live can um, go for, go for the rest of your life. It, it, it absolutely doesn't. These youth were very courageous. I was very impressed with, uh, with their devotion to God and to their faith community. It was, it was, uh, it was um, one of the great takeaways I, I have. I have great confidence in, in the youth of tomorrow. And sure, you hear about youth who are doing all kinds of um, things that we'd rather that they not do, but so many are being wonderful in so many ways. So I wanna jump in with a quote from a 2018 General Conference talk um, from Elder Rasband, and I kind of chuckle that it was given in 2018 because the title is Be Not Troubled, 
which I think is such a pertinent message for where we are today in 2020. And just to give an exposition of the background of, of the talk, um, brother and sister Razband were talking with their, with their married children. And one of them said um, this quote, and I want to give this to you. She said, is it still safe and wise to bring children into the seemingly wicked and frightening world we live in? And that kind of set up his message. But from, from your research, from what you've seen, and you, you mentioned the, the courageous youth of today, is it, what, what advice would you give to a young person that maybe posed a similar question to you? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a scary um, time right now. A lot of anxiety and, and fear and uncertainty. Um, I'm doing some research on COVID right now, and it's fascinating that um, faith, religious activity, religious um, belief uh, makes a huge difference in how people approach these very difficult times. And uh, the study shows that the more religious people are, on average, the more likely they are to have an optimistic view of the future, of their own future and the future of the world. And so there's, um, you know, faith is is a powerful idea. And when you're bringing children into this world, teaching them to have faith is a marvelous gift that you give them because faith will carry them through so many difficult, challenging times, so many setbacks, so many barriers that will be placed in front of them. So I think um, you know, my experience with the youth that I interviewed was that they are full of optimism, belief, hope. They're, they're clear-eyed. They see that there's problems and challenges, but their belief in God and their belief in their sacred texts and their traditions allow them to have um, the ability to move forward in faith. And I think uh, raising kids up in a difficult time to have confidence in God and faith in themselves that's a great gift to this world because those people can help spread light and joy and truth. That is amazing. The gift of faith, not just for your family, not just for your child, but for the world. Exactly. Thank you so much, Dr. Dalhite, for, for joining us on the podcast today. I think your message, I, and, and I hope this podcast is a resource for people who are processing these, these tough and uncertain times and navigating their unique family relationships and how they plan to bring religion into that. And so thank you for your insights. Thank you for your time. And this has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks, Todd. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to know more about Dr. Dalhite and his research, those links will be available in the show notes. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for us, please email us at BYU sflpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.